Welcome to Eat, Drink and Be Kerry, the podcast version of one of Australia's most popular foodie blogs, travelling the world bite by bite. Now here's Kerry. Hi, I'm Kerry Heaney, and today I'm talking to Shirley Haring, who has turned her passion for gathering food into a business. I first met Shirley as a food blogger, and we shared a dining table and chewed the fat over many dinners. Shirley has gone on to establish Hand Sourced, a business that brings people who farm with transparency, ethics, sustainability, soil health, and animal husbandry together with the people who want to cook and eat their produce. Here's how it works. This is Eat, Drink and Be Kerry, travelling the world bite by bite. So I'm talking to Shirley Haring, who has a wonderful business called Hand Sourced. What have you been doing today, Shirley? A little bit different morning for me this morning, Kerry, given that I worked yesterday and I did training for 22 butchers yesterday and last night. So this morning was a little bit foggy and a little bit slower than normal. So far, I've checked email and processed orders. I've had a couple of conversations with farmers regarding delivery. I have put frozen refrigerated goods into the freezer ready for collection and export and I'm about to embark on a very exciting podcast. (laughs) Well it's lovely to have a good chat anyhow. Um, Shirley what does Hand Source all about? How did did it come to be? How did it come to be? So given my over my career history and in my previous life was something that I always did on the side. So a group of friends and I would be looking around, seeing what sort of alternatives were available from farms and from growers. And I would love to go and talk to these farmers, collect their goods and then distribute them to our friends. And over the years, the number grew and it grew. Then I moved to Queensland and it started again and it grew and it grew. Um, And eventually it got to about six or 700 people. So once it got to that point, I decided to turn it into a business. And what we do is we essentially visit farms, speak with farmers, and then directly distribute their whole animal proteins to the direct public, to food service, and to the retail arm. We really concentrate on stuff that's unusual and hard to find. How do you choose your farmers? Um, These days I am very fortunate in that farmers come to me, but they still have to meet the same criteria as they would as if I chose them myself. So organic is not the be all and end all for me, but what is at the basis of it all is a really sound understanding of regenerative farming um, and the agricultural models that they use on their soil and on their land management. So even though I deal with animals, it's the soil and the land management and the farming practices that revolve around that that has the overall outcome on how the quality of the meat is established. So research into things like the the polyface model, um, strong agricultural practices, all that type of thing, they have to have a good understanding of that and a passion for what they're doing. So regenerative farming is looking after the land, making sure that it's going to be around and productive for the future. Is that what you're meaning? 
that's that's a nutshell version of it, Kerry, and I think that's the really the most simplistic way of explaining it to people. It's about, <clears throat> excuse me, it's about looking at the soil as a whole, um, removing external factors such as chemicals, fertilisers, herbicides, uh, any type of chemical intervention whatsoever, and treating the soil and tilling the soil very much as we would have done many generations ago and returning to the soil from the animals in the form of the way they aerate the soil from the way they move and the manure that they uh, provide um, which encourages the strong growth of grasses and bushes and natural plants which the animals then in turn eat so it's that cycle of farming that is a natural evolving process long before we took farming and turned it into an industrialized process I guess a business business yes. it still must be a business for people who are farming like this though it absolutely is a business and it's really important for the general public to look at the roots of farming and how it was established originally being prepared to accept that farmers go back to that and so looking at things that no longer look sterilized and the same and all one size, such as rows of pink chicken, for example, you know, recognising that animals look differently um, than what we're used to seeing them and recognising bumps and bruises and different sizes in those sorts of products. They are a result of natural farming practices and they're to be embraced rather than shunned and put to one side because they don't look the same. So that's where they fall out of favour with um, normal retailers who would still be looking for the or conformity uh, in what they're putting on their shelves. Yeah, and it's, it's not necessarily even the retailers. It's the big businesses that own the companies that own the retailers. They have control over what comes in and what sits on shelves. Um, I think that's why places like some of the more localised IGAs are becoming more widely accepted in the communities because they have a little bit more say in what they put on the shelves. Um, having said that, the chances of my product ending up on some of those shelves is still quite remote. But our retailers that we deal with are embracing that regenerative structure underneath. So there are butchers in Brisbane now that are taking on these products um, and there are a number of providors that are taking on these products because they're prepared to invest the time in educating the public and that's what it's about. So do these products come at a premium cost? Sometimes they do, Kerry. That's... Um, but it depends on what your version of a premium cost is. Uh, if I use a chicken, for example, long time ago, well, when I say long time ago, maybe our grandparents' era, maybe our era, Kiri. <laughs> not anymore, are we? Roasting a whole chicken wasn't something that people did particularly often because it was expensive. And when they did buy it, they invested their time in it. They cooked the whole thing. You know, they made stock. They roasted the bird, they used the drippings for gravy, the stock went on to make another dish a long time, the fat went into the larger. It was something that they invested in. Um, now we have such an intensive factory system in farming that the majority of our meat is appallingly cheap. So when you're talking about a premium cost, we're really looking at what a product used to cost and what it costs now based on intensive factory farming. Yes. Well, it's a big big difference, isn't it? It is a big difference. It can it can reduce the cost of a product 
to probably 20% of its original value. Hmm. So you're obvious, your business is thriving. My business is thriving, yes. It's become very, it's growing very quickly. We started in January formally with a, a trademarked name and an idea that we would do a nice, soft, gentle launch into the Brisbane public and have just been absolutely overwhelmed at the consumer's response and in turn at the response of farmers. No longer do we, well, I still have to, you know, jump on and try and seek out farmers, but not a day goes past now that I don't get a phone call or an email or a Skype call from people who are growing the most amazing and unusual product out in the middle of nowhere um, and really looking back at true heritage lines and strong bloodlines of products that we thought had disappeared. Um, people who travel to Europe and come back with, say, two males and four females of a particular type of livestock and are growing this livestock out in the out in the desert or out in the bush, miles away from anywhere. And now they're saying, well, hang on a minute, I'd really like people to know about this. And they're coming to us and saying, what sort of chances have we got to get it out there? I think that's really exciting because I want to educate the public to know what these products are because they've never heard of them, but also that they can eat them and embrace them in their home. The more that that happens, the more money we give back to the farmer. The more money we give back to the farmer, the more likely we are to support that breeding and bring it back into the forefront. I think supporting farmers is a, is a wonderful thing to do because without farmers, we we really would starve, and you know people don't seem to realise that nowadays. So, what's the most unusual sort of food um, or product that a farmer's rung you up about lately? Probably the most recent was something that quite excited us, which was the Awasi sheep. I'm not sure if you've heard of an Awasi sheep before. Is that the, I've seen your photograph on Facebook, was that the fat-tailed sheep? Exactly. That's another name that they're often given, is the fat-tailed sheep. And um, I'm not quite sure where uh, Di found me, but I was really excited to listen to the beginnings of her story. And I'm looking forward to visiting her and finding out more about this product because most of the sheep that we see domestically these days, even in the images that farms allow us to have a lovely picture of, is a, a tailless white sheep frolicking in a green paddock. These guys have got an enormous tail, as you saw. It's big. Um, it's big. big. Yeah, it can weigh up to four or five kilos, I understand. And they thrive in the desert. They, fr they thrive on dry land. Well, I think the problem with, with tails and why they're cut off in the uh, coastal areas is because of... Um, flies. Yeah. Yep, it's flies and insects and so on. Yeah. So that makes sense that they would be a good um, desert animal. But also it's, it's curious that you raise that. Yes, we dock, we dock our sheep because of flies and we chemically treat them to make sure that those problems don't affect the quality of our wool the quality of our hot hide and the quality of our meat. Whereas you cannot dock a fat tail sheep. It's just physically almost impossible. And if anybody wants to get out there and Google a wasi sheep, you will understand why. It is hand to land management that keeps those livestock from having those fly problems, which is generation farming, straight from the hand to the land to keep those animals sheep clean. It's not something 
that has been done to make it easier for intensive factory purposes. So are the people who are coming to you, the farmers who are coming up with these products, are they generational farmers or are they farmers or people who have decided to go back to the land seeking a different sort of lifestyle? Yeah, we get both, Kerry. It's really interesting. We, we get a lot of the tree changes, um, people who have come back to farming. First off, people who've always wanted to be on the, on the land and are often at, at the verge of retirement, so they've cashed in their whatevers and gone into farming. And it's interesting the lessons that they're learning while they're doing that. People who have got farming in their blood and came away from the farm as a young teenager and are now going back and embracing the qualities that their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents before them had instilled with, into them without them even knowing. And those that have lived on the farm and really are quite happy to remain that way. So there is no definitive answer to what type of person comes to us. But what is across the board is that they're all seeking to make a fundamental change to animal welfare and the way that it's perceived in the community. So when we're talking about animal welfare, I think there's a lot of people who, um, and certainly it's something that I consider when I'm buying meat, that I want to buy meat that has um, that comes from animals who've had a good life, except for one really bad day. Is this the same sort of, um, uh, you know, is that, is that what your farmers um, hold as a high uh, priority? Uh, we go a little deeper, actually. To us, it's not... Um... Having a good life is fantastic, but what happened to them before they had a good life is more important. How much genetic modification has taken place over the, per the parent generation, the grandparent generation, and the great-grandparent generation of the pure blood of that particular animal or poultry? Um, so, for example, chicken, almost every chicken that you see in the supermarket uh, the retail store, the fast food store, even the ones that are having a good life on pasture, they all come from the same stock, which is a Ross or Cobb chicken. And they've been genetically modified over, over 55 years to 60 years to look the way they look. There is no real breed called a Cobb chicken or a Ross chicken. They've given the name over the families that initially started the genetic change for those chickens. Um, so, yes, it's had a good life and it's been able to roam a paddock, but the fact is it's still a genetically modified product at the end of the day. It's not hormones, it's genetically modified. It's like taking um, the, the, the best part of a green apple because it's crisp and then the best part of a red apple because we like its colour and the best part of that tree because it grows in the, the right climate and creating a hybrid that performs well in our climate the result isn't a purebred apple. It's the result of a number of different factors. So having a great life is one thing, but connecting to the heritage and the true blood lineage of the product in the first place is more important. Okay. Well, you've got some very sound thinking there, Shirley. I'm so <laughs> interested. I hadn't thought of taking it back that, I mean, I understand the importance of, of rare and endangered breeds in, in um in farm animals as much as, as in, you know, orangutans and tigers and things like that, which is, it's a new, it's a newer concept. I think people have been willing to, um, to help preserve um, endangered animals when they're exotic, but 
farm animals, it didn't seem quite so important, but it obviously is now. It's um, a new, and you say it's a new concept. It's a new concept that goes back hundreds of years. Mm, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I've been having a look at your website and I'm intrigued by um, some of the classes and uh, some tips that you've got on there. Um, one of them, I, I've got to have you explain to me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've got a thing on how to render schmaltz. Yeah. <laughs> what? I always thought smaltz was a was a term used for something that was, um, you know, a bit cheesy. So <laughs> what is it really and how do you render it? <laughs> so when you say cheesy, you're talking about... Um, um, I'm not talking about cheesy as in cheese. <laughs> I'm talking about something that's a bit smalty, you know, it's a bit... Um, uh, twee. <laughs> yes, it's an expression. Yeah. Yeah. What is schmaltz or how do you render schmaltz? <laughs> Both. How do you render it? If it, what, but you've got to know what it, what it is to render it. That's correct. And if you, if you peruse the article a little more, you'll see I've used a lot of different animal names in there as well, not just schmaltz. But schmaltz itself comes from the Jewish cuisine, of course. Um, it's a very important ingredient in Jewish recipes. Um, it's a byproduct, I guess, of the fat of the animal. So for some people, that's quite unappetizing. For Australians, uh, it was often the lard pot that ended up at the back of great grandma's stove. But essentially, it comes from a place of frugality. It comes from a place of using the whole animal and making sure that we get the most out of it. And it goes back to when chicken meat was an expensive treat. So it's really rendered chicken fat and that's mm -hmm. pretty much what it is. These days you might buy your duck fat or your goose fat and pay a premium price on going and buying it from your gourmet butcher. But the process of making it yourself at home is very, very simple. Whether it comes from a cow, a pig, a chicken, uh, beef fat, whether it's lard or tallow, whatever you want to call it, it is the same process. So basically what you do is you collect as much as you can of the chicken skin and the chicken fat to make the schmaltz, chop it down into little pits, pop it into a skillet on the stove top, make sure it's something that doesn't stick, turn the heat on to super low, cover it up and let it cook and the liquid from the fat will start to collect at the bottom. And what you're collecting there is essentially your smolts. So you raise the heat just enough so that it's not actually frying it off, it's just rendering it down and turning the solid into the liquid. Give it a stir, give it a poke, make sure that you're pulling as much as you can, and then just run it through, I run mine through twice, but so you run it through a strainer first to keep the solids to one side. And then I run mine again through a piece of cheesecloth to pull out any other impurities or little bone fragments that might be sitting there. And what you're left with is 100% pure chicken fat and or schmaltz. Interestingly enough, you were asking me about the lamb tail. One of the delicacies to do with those Awasi lamb tails is to follow that process two or three times. And what you're left with, with the fat from those lamb tails, is something that resembles a very lamby, crispy version of pork crackle. Oh, <laughs> you've got me with that one. <laughs> okay, let's let's try for five quickies. Uh-oh. <laughs> Hot or cold? Hot. 
pickles or jams? Oh, pickles any day. Sorry to all my jam loving people, but give me savory anytime. <laughs> Beef or chicken? No. Oh, no, I can't. My farmers will kill me. <laughs> Can I have bricken? <laughs> bricken. Okay. Heritage chicken any day over chicken and grass fed, grass raised beef. Yep. Okay. Barbecue or bake? Barbecue. And nothing to do with cooking, please. <laughs> um, dogs or cats? Dogs. dogs. I have one keeping me company right now. His name, her name is Pepper, obviously. Back to food again. Yep, got to love a dog. Besides, we've got to have something to do with all those bones. Definitely. I've, I've, uh, my dogs love the bones as well. <laughs> so, Shirley, where's, where's hand sauce going? Oh, I thought when I launched it originally, it would live under my house in its little single operation of the single fridge and the single freezer that I had with the sole goal, as per my safe food plan, of holding something for 24 hours and then shipping it straight out again. Six months, two cool rooms, four freezers and two fridges later, I am rethinking that. Uh, I would like to be proactive in the way that, first off, Brisbane, secondly, Queensland, and thirdly, Australia, looks at the way they shop. So in terms of where it's going, I would like to think that it's, it's part of a fundamental change of how we look at the food chain. Physically, where it's going, somewhere where I can afford to put it in the long term, because not making a fortune out of it is definitely <laughs> something that, um, it's about creating change in the way we think. It's one o'clock. Oh, I'm sorry, that was Siri having a little chat with us. Um, <laughs> something about the way we think of food has to come first. I'd like to think it gets into everybody's kitchen. It gets into everybody's psyche. I want it to be something that you think about at night before you go to bed. Not so much where are you going to be able to afford to buy this premium produce, but rather when you buy this premium produce, how you can maximise the use of it and really get the best of it. Because in the long term, it's funding the way we feed Australia. Well, they're <laughs> lovely thoughts, Shirley. I think that um, if we had more people like you, we wouldn't have um, as many problems as we do with, with uh, having farmers who don't have that uh, feeling that they're producing the right, um, or no, that they're, they're, they need to feel the love, don't they, those farmers? They do need to feel the love. And, you know, as a sideline of the conversation, I just need to throw into this podcast how amazing these people really are. I mean, we, we talk very much about loving our farmers and we talk a lot about giving them a good value in their dollar. What we often see is the fruit and the vegetable side of it being really well represented with lots of um, food hub type boxes. But often it's only around 40 to 50, 50 cents in the dollar that goes back to those farmers. Hand source makes sure that the full 100% of the dollar goes back to the farmers. So the farmers asking price is never compromised. And that way it gives them license to continue these people are absolutely amazing. They live, breathe, eat and sleep the animals that they raise. They, they bring them into their homes. They sleep with them. They do what they can 
to preserve the integrity of these animals. They are humbling and awe-inspiring and they've changed my life and I would just love them to change other people's lives as well. Great thoughts, Shirley. Thank you for having a chat with me. And, Thank you for uh, having me. Hoping, uh, I'm thinking that uh, dinner sounds a lot more exciting than it did and I'm thinking fat. What's <laughs> a fat? Get into the schmaltz, Kerry. Get into the schmaltz, definitely. Thank you, Shirley Herring. Thank you, Kerry. Thanks for listening to Eat, Drink and Be Kerry. For more, subscribe to the blog or look for Kerry on Facebook, Twitter and Google+. This has been another quality podcast from Bytes.com. All kinds of podcasts for all kinds of people.